Hello, James. I'm Raj Shah, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm proud to lead a global institution that has been working on health all around the world for more than 100 years. Uh, and today is really spearheading a global effort to expand and improve the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm thrilled to be with you. Dr. Rajiv Shah shapes the humanity and dignity of billions of people everywhere. He grew up in Detroit. As a student, he began to demonstrate the leadership he exercises in his role today. Before that, as administrator of USAID, he led America's response to the Haiti earthquake and the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Now in COVID-19, he's calling on science, business and philanthropy to unite in what he calls meeting this moment. I'm James Chow and welcome to this special conversation. Thank you very much, Dr. Shah, for joining us. This is an unfamiliar and for many people a shocking time. COVID-19 has left billions of people confused, devastated and grieving. You're a citizen of New York. How's it feeling for you right now? Well, on a personal basis, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, I have the uh, opportunity to protect my family by staying at home. Uh, and we're able to make the transition to digital and remote work in a manner that allows uh, the Rockefeller Foundation to get its work done and, in fact, accelerate its efforts to help vulnerable people uh, at a critical time in our nation's history. Uh, on the other hand, America, I think, is struggling uh, a great deal with this crisis that has already caused one out of every five Americans to become unemployed. It has already... Uh, resulted in 70 plus percent of American households losing their income, some degree of income loss. And it's exposed the fact that roughly half of the American population uh, is uh, unable to have real savings. You know, 40% of American households did not have $400 in the bank to protect against this type of crisis. And so for many, if not most of those families, they are unfortunately in the challenge, challenging situation of choosing between their lives and their livelihoods right now. So, you know, it's, it's a very difficult period of time for the United States, uh, for the rest of the world. And this pandemic is uh, going to go on for a while. And so we believe it's time to come together and really try to bend the curve, so to speak, in a more productive way. I mean, people talk about flattening the curve. You're talking about bending the curve. What's the fundamental difference there? Well, you know, I, I, I think the real difference is uh, you can always do social distancing or you can shut down an economy in an effort to reduce uh, the number of deaths that are going to be experienced and the amount of health uh, loss that's going to be experienced. On the other hand, doing that has genuine consequences that deprive families of their livelihoods, that d disrupt people's ability to provide for their children. And that's devastating. And it's particularly devastating in America for lower income and minority populations that bear the brunt of both the health and the economic crisis right now. So we have put forth a plan that would allow the economy to be more operational during a period of time, maybe 12 to 18 months, 
while we are hoping a vaccine will be invented and then manufactured and distributed and used at very large scale. And we really believe testing is the only way out between those two options of shutting everything down to save lives or allowing people to work, but putting their lives at genuine risk. And so America really does need to invest much, much more effort, resources, cooperation and partnership to scale up testing in the United States. And that's what we've been trying to get done. Let's talk about that then, because not only the United States, but many governments in the world have been left reeling, be it through lack of preparedness or just be it through a lack of capacity to deal with a virus that's smarter than we are. You, meanwhile, at the Rockefeller, have created a national action testing plan that seeks to transform not only the future for millions of Americans, but the present, the tomorrow for all these Americans too. How's that going to work and how could that work quickly? Well, you know, like so many other problems, we felt that we should use our capacity to bring people together across uh, the left and the right of America's political system, across science and industry, investors and business leaders, all working together to say, how can we come up with an actionable, pragmatic plan to change the nature of testing availability and use in the American economy during this crisis. And our plan is very simple. It resides on moving from 1 million tests a week today to 3 million tests per week within eight weeks, and then to 30 million tests per week within six months. And the reason for that is we believe until you get up to about 30 million tests a week, it will be very difficult to have large parts of the economy reopen safely in an environment where we still don't have either a really effective therapeutic product or a vaccine. And the plan is uh, something that scientists, industry leaders, investors, government officials from both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations have agreed to and have identified really concrete actions that will help us get there. So, so our goal is to create a data-driven, evidence-based response that is grounded in scaling up access to testing, frankly, as has taken place already in parts of China, in New Zealand, in Australia, in South Korea. We have a lot to learn from you know, Asian countries that have succeeded in Taiwan in scaling up uh, testing availability. I mean, with some of those places like China and South Korea, they learned because, very sadly, not because they're any better, but because they had that experience from 18 years ago with uh, the large bout of severe acute respiratory syndrome, particularly in mainland China, and where I am here in Hong Kong. What are some of the lessons that you can borrow from them then, but also from what they're doing now, if you look at China, for example? Well, well, I think the big the big lesson that was learned during SARS and MERS and other prior pandemic threats was uh, was the absolute importance of a data driven response, and a data driven response rests fundamentally on testing to identify who's positive, and contact tracing to make sure that you take people who then are exposed to those who are known positives, and protect them either through isolation or self-quarantine or further testing to to make sure that they are uh, cared for in an effective way and they are not a threat to others around them. COVID-19, of course, with its very high transmissibility, even for asymptomatic carriers of the disease, 
means you really have to be good at testing even people who don't yet have symptoms. And I, you know, in, if you look at South Korea, for example, I think for every one positive case they identify, they're testing more than 60 different people. And that means you're, you have broad enough testing that most of the tests are going to be negative. In the United States, it's five. We test five people for every one positive. And that's really an indicator that we're, we're not scaling up testing nearly as much as we need to to both capture the positives, but also know who's safe and who can be part of an essential workforce that is protected uh, because they don't have the virus yet. So your big vision as its architect is 1330, as you said, to get from the 1 million to the 3 million to the 30 million in the space of just six months. Now, some people can't even see beyond next week. So what would you say to countries, be it in America or many other governments, who say they want to replicate the goodness and the wisdom of the model that you put forward? It's not just a model. It's a it's an action plan, as you said. Yeah, well, the Rockefeller Foundation Action Plan, and we've, by the way, we haven't just put it out as a plan. We've invested millions and millions, and we've made a $50 million investment in COVID response overall, much of which is to accelerate testing in America and around the world. But I would say to, to government leaders everywhere in the world, the number one thing you should be thinking about right now is how do you get uh, scale up of testing and contact tracing? And, you know, in America, about two thirds of the capacity for molecular testing exists in university labs and research labs. So for us, the challenge is bringing that online. The other challenge in America is that it's hard to get supplies right now. And we need to organize the buyers of test equipment and supplies and buy issue purchase orders that are longer term, larger scale and more financially credit worthy so that manufacturers will change uh, the level at which they're manufacturing the, the supplies that are critically needed for a data driven response. In the United States, we also need up to 300,000 additional people who are trained and able to be contact tracers to take data about positive uh, individuals and and then do something with that data by identifying even in simple interviews you know who's likely to have been exposed and then make sure those people know and are getting tests you can use some technology tools to to help, but you still need a lot of people to actually do that. They need to be well trained. So I, I would say to leaders around the world, testing and contact tracing, which requires building lab capacity, accessing supplies, and having a workforce that's focused on taking the data, understanding what happened with it, and using it for effective contact tracing. That's really the only way to have safe economic activity uh, during a period of time when we're all waiting for a vaccine. If you can't get to the 30 million, for example, if you don't have that lab capacity that you just described, is it safe for governments to ease and maybe even withdraw lockdowns as some of them in Europe, for example, appear to be moving towards? Yeah, well, no, no, it's not safe. Uh, But that said, you know, political leaders have to make judgments about balancing the health and public health safety of their population with the economic consequences of being shut down. You know, in the United States, we see a big spike in domestic violence. We see a big spike in uh, in mental health and depression and suicides. We see a huge spike in malnutrition 
because so many children depend on school lunches as their primary source of nutrition uh, through our child nutrition programs. So, so leaders have to make the trade-off and say that we're willing to absorb a higher level of risk for certain parts of our population in order to reduce the negative outcomes of being shut down. What the Rockefeller Foundation is trying to do is craft a path forward that minimizes that trade-off, that allows you to use data and evidence in a targeted way to protect those who are vulnerable, both from the disease itself and from the consequences of shutting down the economy. So the Rockefellers put in $50 million. That was a first part of 20, and then you added another $30 million in the last couple of days. You're calling this, uh, well, probably it's not a plan. It's a, it's a movement. You call it this meeting, this moment, meeting the moment. And it looks not only at the safe reopening of economies through testing, but it is to help fund a broader global COVID-19 response. What are some of the other areas that we should be focusing on right now? Well, well, thank you for highlighting the commitment that we've made. I, I would say that, you know, we've actually pivoted a huge amount of our work to focus on COVID-19 at home and around the world. And we can do that because our fundamental mission is helping people who are vulnerable. And right now, so many billions of people around our planet are deeply, deeply vulnerable. Just to put it in perspective, for the first time since 1990, we're looking at a prolonged and significant increase in the number of people on the planet who live in extreme poverty, who cannot have enough food to meet their basic caloric needs, whose children grow up in the dark in communities without electricity and lighting and who suffer the everything from sexual violence to human rights abuses in a context where they don't have the standing and economic capacity to protect themselves. So it's very, very important that we come together as a global community and serve those who are vulnerable. And that's been our main commitment. Uh, the specific answer to your question is threefold. The first is we're investing in efforts to accelerate the response to the pandemic at home in the United States, as we've discussed, but also around the world, and in particular in, in Africa and India. We have stood up emergency operation centers, trained uh, community health workforce, putting digital tools in the hands of health service providers to do better monitoring and surveillance, and built an international architecture that allows for data sharing together with UNICEF and the World Health Organization. Second, we are working to avert a food crisis in the United States, but importantly, around the world. And right now, our early warning systems indicate that both in West Africa and particularly in East Africa, the Horn of Africa, we're likely to see a very large scale acute nutrition or hunger crisis in the fall. So we are putting in place efforts throughout Africa, for example, to have COVID compliant food markets to ensure that the partners that are on the front lines of, of serving those who go hungry during these crises can reach the, them with food and with services and working with our partner, the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa to work with farmers around the continent to help improve the chances that we can minimize the actual food crisis itself. And third, we're working to help accelerate and improve economic mobility and security for families who are economically vulnerable, again, at home and around the world. In the United States, that means working with our government 
to come up with policies that reach people who are losing their jobs, including the recent uh, first ever really announcement of a cash payment to households so that they can have some financial security. Uh, around the world, that often means working with our partners in India and in Africa and in Southeast Asia, uh, including Myanmar and elsewhere, to ensure that more communities have access to basic infrastructure like electricity and lighting so that they can be economically active and productive during this crisis in a safe manner. So we're, we're really doing everything we can. Uh, I do believe the moment, really meeting the moment, calls for government leaders, heads of state, private industry, financial sector uh, powerhouses to all come together and recognize that a little bit like after World War II, we have a chance to recreate a global uh, economic system that can help be more inclusive and that can protect, you know, maybe a billion people from moving back into a condition of, of real extreme suffering and poverty. I'm going to push you a little bit on that now because you made a very clear call, even in your op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with Paul Romer about unifying business with science, with philanthropy. And you've also spoken recently about the mistrust in our institutions. Is this possible in a time of division when so many people are distrustful of the leaders that they even elect? Well, you know, trust is built uh, often in the cauldron of, of uh, crisis. And, and I led uh, the U.S. government's response to the Haiti earthquake. I, I led the West African Ebola crisis response. And you're right, trust is a difficult thing to earn, uh, but it is often earned during crises. And so this is, and, and I, I do believe that during a crisis that's so broad and so, uh, that affects everybody, you know, in a personal manner, people are willing to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And they're willing to trust each other if, you know, if they see those uh, leaders taking actions that are likely to be protective. We see that in the United States, where despite our very partisan politics, uh, Americans are coming together and saying, you know, the response to this crisis should be non-political. We should be putting aside our usual political differences and coming together to support each other through a crisis, in particular, the healthcare and essential workers who are such heroes uh, here at home and all around the world. I, I think I would expect the same sentiment to be the case in many other countries around the world. Over the last four years, we've really seen a drop off in international cooperation. I mean, that's just a reality. Um, and, and I feel like the bigger challenge might be rebuilding trust in international cooperation. But a, a pandemic like this is a global one. And, you know, if you look at the way the World Health Organization and some coalitions of public and private partners are collaborating to develop a vaccine and get it manufactured and distributed quickly, it gives hope that we can, in fact, cooperate more across U.S., uh, and China, across Africa, and, and the, the other Western economies, uh, and, and really in a, in a context that's about sharing data and improving the living standards of people who are going to find this crisis to be incredibly trying. Well, you, as you said, led the response uh, in 2014 with the West Africa Ebola outbreak. We saw China and the United States working together on the front lines, but often with the diplomacy, the nuanced diplomacy around that. Do you think we could see that again? 
if it's not for COVID-19, than for a next pandemic, which we know will arrive on our shores? Uh, yes, well, we have to see it. We have to see it just to get over COVID-19, and then we're going to have to see it to prevent uh, what will be more frequent pandemics. I mean, we, we, you know, these are not new occurrences. What's new here is the is the incredible transmissibility of COVID-19 in particular relative to prior uh, pandemic threats. And even Ebola wasn't uh, transmitted you know, in this manner and with this efficiency. So, so yes, we need to see more international cooperation and uh, there certainly are opportunities for it. And uh, frankly, as part of that, you know, the US and China have to be able to work together uh, because that is increasingly an important partnership for tackling global problems. Raj Shah, you're a trusted leader. What do you say to the person who has lost their ability to earn a wage, who've lost their shelter for themselves and for their family, who've lost uh, the ability to have a meal or to store up $400 in their bank account to, to fight off, to beat off an emergency like this? Do they have a future to look forward to? Well, you know, the first thing I say to to those uh, families is that we see you and we respect your dignity and your humanity. And if there's one thing I've learned from decades of working uh, in this field, both in the United States, uh, in communities that have been left behind and around the world, uh, in communities often torn apart by conflict or uh, simply extremely poor because of bad governance and challenging environmental situations. It's that people have the same common humanity. Everybody wants their children to be able to be hopeful about the future. Everybody finds dignity in being able to provide effectively for their family. Everybody wants their spouse to be safe and respected in the community in which they live. And everybody aspires for their children's futures. And so, you know, this is a moment where those basic common values really need to define our politics, our actions, uh, and our behavior more than ever. And, and so, you know, this crisis is going to be debilitating for so many people. Um, I think we have to say thank you to more people than we realize who are essential workers, whether they are in a meatpacking plant in the United States and allowing the food system in the U.S. to work, or whether they're a healthcare worker in Hong Kong that's on the front lines of the crisis, or whether they are a activist in the slums of Nairobi trying to prevent uh, violence from breaking out while meeting the needs of people who are too often uh, left without. You know, we're all we all share some common values, and if those common values can be elevated through this crisis, and if we can respect each other more and work on behalf of each other more effectively, we can actually build the kind of world we need to build together. The beauty of the Rockefeller is that you're outside the politics, but at the same time, you can help moderate all the key players and provide them with the gathering point somewhere in the middle or somewhere in that mix. This is obviously a very complex pandemic, perhaps different to ones that you've handled in the past, because it's also equally an infodemic, as we've heard time and time again, characterized by misinformation and also by cybercrime. Are our institutions, our governments, our people equipped to handle the onslaught 
of attacks that are coming this way while also handling what is obviously a health emergency? Well, you know, we, I, I don't know the answer to that. We, we do have, uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there um, and, and there's no question about that. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of accurate information out there. It's just often not what people want to hear, you know? And so the reality is uh, we have to counter the misinformation. I, I applaud the UN, the World Health Organization uh, efforts in the United States to elevate the voice of scientists and data and evidence-based decision makers in the context of that misinformation. Um, and at the same time, you know, recognize that there's always going to be uh, debate. I mean, I remember during the Ebola crisis where, where people felt uh, all kinds of things in communities about who brought in Ebola, why was it here, what, you know, and, the, and, the, and those sorts of narratives do, uh, transpire and take hold in these crises. But if leaders and decision makers can can just remain data-driven, evidence-based, and focused on the metrics that matter, you know, how many people are perishing from the disease? Let's be open and transparent about it. How fast is transmission happening? Uh, how widespread and ubiquitous and effective is testing to understand the, the nature of the pathway forward? what's really happening to essential workers from a health and economic perspective and what are the tools uh, that we need both economic and health to protect our uh, protect what in the united states we call main street the main real part of the economy so that it can survive this crisis those are the types of things we should expect of our leaders and we should expect uh, expect that they break through the misinformation and do the right thing well, everyone's talking about what's going to happen next week, but in your spirit, because you look six months ahead, I'd like to finish off by taking a bit of a forecast check. We know that another disease of pandemic or epidemic potential is already on the way. Is COVID-19 actually preparing us well for that? Or are we headed for another humanitarian crisis as we are in right now? Well, we're going to be headed for many other humanitarian crises if we don't take some real preventative actions. Uh, the Ro Rockefeller Foundation has called for and is building, uh, together with other partners, an early warning network that could enable us to be uh, ahead of instead of behind the curve, as we were really everywhere around the world with COVID-19. Uh, but but uh, coming out of the Ebola crisis, there were no less than four international panels, one of which I served on with Ban Ki-moon, who is the UN Secretary General, of course, that identified the actions we need to take to prevent the next pandemic. These are not expensive actions, uh, you know, maybe for $10 billion a year, more or less, you can prevent the, a large-scale human humanitarian catastrophe like the one we're living through right now. Uh, at the time, that was considered a huge number. And everybody said, gosh, that's uh, that is hard to see how that happens. And now, in the United States alone, we've probably spent four to six trillion dollars bailing out the US economy and 10 billion a year feels like the world's most uh, best buy, so to speak, in terms of preventing these types of crises. So we have to remember that we have to do the right thing. I'm actually quite confident that over the, the medium to long run, we will do the right thing. What I'm more worried about is that in, in August, in the United States, we will have another wave of Corona and adenoviruses that contribute to a new flu season. And without 
broad and ubiquitous testing uh, being available in America at that point in time, it will lead to both a spike in COVID-19 and a considerable disruption again of the American economy because people won't know the difference between uh, common flu symptoms and having COVID-19. So we have, uh, we're really racing against the clock to put in place broad and ubiquitous access to testing. And that is an all hands on deck effort. It'll continue through and beyond August. The Rockefeller Foundation will continue to bring together science and industry, private and public, left and right, to make a difference on that uh, particular area over the next few months. And I thank you and your viewers for both being part of this and bringing the same mindset to their own countries uh, where it's just so important that the world gets this right. Dr. Raj Shami, we thank you and the Rockefeller Foundation for continuing to give millions of people in America and everywhere the dignity that you obviously champion. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. The China Current continues its special coverage on the coronavirus outbreak. Go to our social media, at The China Current, and our website for interviews, videos, and podcasts. I'm James Chow. Thank you.